0: And I think part of what New Power Generation was about was Prince sort of cleaning the slate.
1: And I mean, you know, that whole Diamond and Pearl era, it was just nasty, funky, greasy,
2: you name it. He hit the play button and it was cream. He said, well, what do you think? And I'm like, dude, that's, that's it. This is it.
3: Hello, and welcome back to another installment of the official Prince podcast. It's been a minute, and I've missed you. I'm your host, Andrea Swenson. I'm a music journalist in Prince's hometown of Minneapolis. And in this series, we are going to get into what this city meant to Prince and at the formation of his new power generation in the late 80s and early 90s. I'm eager to welcome you further into this city that I love and to convince you why I think it's accurate to describe the first iteration of the MPG as a local band. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to spend four episodes really digging into the Diamonds and Pearls era with the musicians who played alongside Prince. This is the era of Cream going to number one, Prince performing Get Off in Butt Out Pants, and that luxurious title track that so prominently featured the force of nature, Rosie Gaines. This was what Prince's staff described as his yellow period, one where he requested that everything channel his two favorite movies at the time, Godfather Three and Barbarella, and one that seemed rooted in a newfound commitment to shattering genre barriers and spreading positivity. To learn more about this era, you're going to hear from the founding members of the NPG in their words. And we're going to take a first listen to some of the vault material included on the new Diamonds and Pearls Super Deluxe Edition, like this song, Something Funky This House Comes. You'll also get to hear the band's reactions as they revisit this material, a lot of which they haven't heard since they recorded it with Prince in the early '90s. You're bringing me way back. Now I'm just like, oh
1: yeah, I remember that. Oh, dang!
3: This is the story of Diamonds and Pearls, a new season of the Prince podcast, produced in collaboration with NPG Records, Paisley Park Enterprises, Sony Music Entertainment, and Warner Records.
0: And make a cry. Yeah. Come on, Rosie. What the fuck is so warm and cozy? When you sing, you make a brother say, Hold me, ladies and gentlemen, Rosie. A drums and percussion, end of discussion. These boys are from um, rushing to show
4: at any time don't give a day. Michael B and Kirkie
1: yeah, J. Like uh,
3: yeah. So for today, I really want to get into what this band, the new power generation, meant to Prince. Listening to that recording of Something Funky This House Comes is a great introduction to this particular group of people, because you can hear Tony Mosley there calling out many of the founding members of the NPG and talking about their incredible talents. It was a big deal that the NPG were co-credited on Diamonds and Pearls alongside Prince. It was the first time Prince had done that since the Revolution, and it signaled the start of a new era. The new power generation would grow and shrink and evolve into many different iterations throughout the rest of Prince's career. Eventually, the letters NPG came to symbolize Prince's prowess as a band leader in the live setting, more than it had to do with any specific group of musicians. But in the beginning, Prince was on a mission to assemble a band who could help him reinvent himself for a new decade. And as the 80s came to a close, he started plucking musicians out of the clubs in his own hometown.
0: Hi, Andrea. My name is Michael Bland. I worked for Prince consistently from sometime in 1989 through 1996.
3: Michael Bland was the first new musician that Prince brought on board for what would soon become the new power generation. I love Michael's story about Prince scouting him when he was just an 18 year old college student.
0: Starting in 1987, I took over drumming for Dr. Mambo's Combo at Bunkers, which is still an institution here, Sundays instead of Mondays now, every Sunday night. And I think what happened was Prince got off the Love Sexy tour and basically just was like, uh, not fired everybody, but he kind of was just disengaged. Like it was over. He was ready to do something else.
3: This is something that I also heard from one of the musicians who continued on from the Love, Sexy era with Prince, Levi Caesar Jr.
2: So there was this idea kind of floating around like a you know bad ghost, you know, like like it, the tour wasn't successful, and and uh, the whole band was scratching their head, and and what happened for a short period of time is um we we were taken off retainer and. During that time, um, I think, you know, some of the band members were like, well, I don't know what's really going on, so maybe this is the time that I should make an exit.
3: Following the Love Sexy tour, which wrapped up in February 1989, the dancer Cat Glover, the singer and keyboardist Bonnie Boyer, and the drummer Sheila E. all left Prince's live band.
2: Well, obviously, I stayed. I, I stayed. And I was a music director, so... um Prince is like, well, you know, it looks like most of the people are gone. So you got to put another band together. So that's when I started, you know, looking for the new players that were the version of the new power
0: generation that I was in. You know, we started with Michael Bland. He heard about me from Margaret Cox. He saw the Combo doing a gig at the Fine Line on a Wednesday, but with a different drummer because I had another job across town. And Prince recognized Margaret. As you know, the lead singer of Tomorrow and the scene, and so on the break, I guess he invited her out to the limo to to have a, a conversation, and he said, "Wow, you guys have a really great band." And he, she was like, "Oh yeah, thanks. This is not our normal drummer, but you should hear you know you should hear us again with our regular drummer. This this kid, he's like seventeen, and uh you know, so I, I was probably eighteen at the time, and um, you know, he's oh yeah. So the next Monday. Here comes Prince with, like, probably half of the band, like, dressed in full regalia, walking into bunkers, you know. <laughs> and uh, he found, like, a cubby hole in, like, a booth in back by the popcorn machine and kind of, you know, just sat up on top of the booth so he could see what was going on. And I kind of peeked my head out, and I see him, and he, we kind of, you know, our eyes meet, and he kind of waves. And so I put my drink down, and I go out to meet him. We start talking. You know, Later on, he decides to sit in with the band, and um, I uh, just kind of was like, I'm just going to not even really pay attention to him. I'm just going to do what I do, you know?
2: Michael was incredible. I'm like, I can't believe this guy is here at Bunkers, and uh, I knew, I'm like, that,
0: that's the guy. Now I, I got to convince Prince, though. And then one night, we're finishing up at Bunkers, and he sends a security down to Invite us out to a party he has, he's having for John Bon Jovi. This just, How was the gig tonight? Oh, yeah, it was good, man. And you're worn out or you feel like playing a little more? So we, the combo, we jump on, you know, the instruments that are set up. And we start kind of just funking, you know? And uh, Prince is looking and he's like, you know, like he's digging what's going on. And he's just over the on the microphone while he's playing. He said, hey, he said, you looking for a job, son? You know, and I was like, ah, yeah, ha, ha, that's that's very funny, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> Two days later, he calls my house and you know asks my dad, "May I speak to Michael, please?" You know, and I'm at that point a student at Augsburg, so he's like, "Hey, you know, uh, I'm calling to ask if you want to join my band," and I, you know, and I'm like, "Well, uh, how soon would it start?" It's pretty soon. I said, well, I, you know, I, I've been going to college. and am like, do, do you think I'll have time to finish my fall semester? And he just starts cracking up because he realizes I have no idea what's on the table. And he says, I think you might be a, a little too busy to do that.
3: By the end of the summer, Michael was flown to L.A. to shoot his first music video with Prince, Party Man, from the Batman soundtrack. And he would make his television debut, performing in front of millions on the 15th anniversary of Saturday Night Live. Michael was 19 years old.
0: Paul Simon was the other musical guest. So we're there. I accidentally walk into Paul Simon's dressing room by accident because I'm like, oh, which one is it? Uh, I think it's this one, you know. And he's super cool. He's like, well, hey, I mean, you want a sandwich or something, man? We got this whole, uh, you know, uh, no, sorry, Mr. Simon. I, uh, you know, it was an accident. Sorry, sir.
3: As Michael adjusted to his new star-studded reality, he realized he had a lot to learn. You know,
0: I was young. I was greenhorn, and uh, he, um, Really, everybody really pitched in and helped me kind of, you know, gain an understanding of not just what the job was, but just how to hang. You know, you're talking about somebody who has conquered the world, took the 1980s as a decade and had its, his way with it. You could engage him in conversation, you know, but really, you're not there for that. It's a lot like the Army. It's like, well, where's the commissary? You follow the hungry soldiers. So a lot of it was that. Like keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. And um, you know, he would still engage me sometimes because I had questions. I was a young person, never been nowhere, never done anything. I would inquire. And sometimes I realized in retrospect that I was really tapped at on his last nerve. And he <laughs> I never really got to thank him for that, because I really just kinda You know, I'd ask him, like, oh, do you know what time the flight is tomorrow? And he's thinking about whatever it is he has to deal with at Warner Brothers, you know. (laughs) And and I'm, you know, 18, 19, you know. Hey, uh, and he he turned around and he, I could tell you, he kind of, you know, took a breath first. So, you know, he never really just broke out and said, do you know who you're talking to? (laughs) I've conquered the world that you live in. Don't you understand who I, he never did that. You know? <laughs> and he had real license to do so.
3: Where Michael really shined was alone in the studio with Prince, where the two could communicate on a much deeper level through the music. Their connection was obvious to them both.
0: A lot of the early recording I did with him was just me and him. He'd be playing piano and I'd be playing the drums. And you know, I'd hang around and watch him just go from bass to guitar to keyboards and just build the track. And we would just talk and get acquainted during those times. Those times are the ones that I cherish the most with him because it's like we're two people having a conversation. And I got more time with him that way than
1: a lot of people did. Here we go. Me and Levi start, and then you come in with big... Okay, are you ready? One, two, three.
3: recording from Prince's vault titled Dark Side, which features Michael on drums and Levi Caesar on bass. It's one of the earlier demos included in the Diamonds and Pearls Super Deluxe set. You can hear how Prince is gently guiding Michael and encouraging him, playing the role of teacher as well as band leader, and getting him ready to start recording a mountain of new material.
0: Some of the songs we ended up recording in studios around the world ended up being the seeds that were planted for Diamonds and Pearls. The basic rhythm track for Willing and Able was probably the first of it. But we recorded that, and the basic for Money Don't Matter Tonight. The same session in Japan, in Tokyo. Sony has a recording studio. <music> and uh, so those two things happened. Oh, also Strollin' was recorded during that session. These would have been that like, towards the end of the tour because we did Europe first and then we went to Japan. Strollin
3: As we know, Prince wasn't one to sit around telling his band, or anyone for that matter, what he was up to in any given moment. But an interview he gave to Neil Carlin for a Rolling Stone cover story in 1990 offered a unique glimpse into the early stages of his work on Diamonds and Pearls. Speaking to Neil backstage at one of his European nude tour shows in August 1990, Prince produced what the writer described as a crinkled dime store notebook that he carries with him like Linus's blanket. Empty when the tour started in May, the book is nearly full with 21 new songs scripted in perfect grammar school penmanship. Songs were pouring out of Prince that summer, which is why he'd started booking studio time and recording demos, even while he was simultaneously juggling the editing of Graffiti Bridge and performing big arena shows. another demo that Prince recorded with Michael and Levi during that prolific summer. It's called Lori Ann." Interestingly, Prince would revisit the song three years later while working on the Undertaker project with Michael and Sonny T. And Michael had completely forgotten that they recorded this earlier version.
0: Let me tell you something. This is not the version of Lori Ann" that I'm familiar with. I'm not saying that's not me playing, but I don't recognize that. <laughs> <laughs> we had played some musical idea and he must have turned it into you know he used the lyrics That's, this is what I'm saying I did a, an interview with Mobeen Azar from the BBC He wanted to know what's in the vault I said well mostly it's a lot of songs that you know already but different versions like there's very few songs that you know Prince just started and finished All sorts of things had different reincarnations.
3: Another idea that was reincarnated, as Michael would say, around this period was the song New Power Generation, which was on the soundtrack and in the film Graffiti Bridge. Prince actually recorded an earlier version of this song under the title Bold Generation way back in 1982. The initial recording includes Morris Day on drums, and it's thought to have been earmarked for the Times album What Time Is It? The new version he recorded in late 1989 was actually one of the first Prince songs to include a contribution from another key member of the NPG, Rosie Gaines. After Michael, she was the next new person to enter the fold. Levi Caesar remembers orchestrating that first meeting between Prince and Rosie.
2: I flew out to the bay, talked to Rosie, and then I flew her back with me. Prince said, "Okay, he didn't want to meet her first until he actually heard her sing. So I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, I wrote a couple of songs. Have her sing those songs, then bring it back to me. And then I'll decide if I want to meet her. And I'm like, oh, this is just a piece of cake yeah.
3: Rosie Gaines also remembers this interaction well.
4: It all started with Levi Caesar. I was in a band called Curtis Olsen Band. And Levi was a guitar player of Curtis Olsen. And so Sheila E. took Levi from Curtis. Yeah. And then Prince took Levi from uh, Sheila E. (laughs) And then he left me in the studio with Levi. And we recorded that song, I Want You. That song, I Want you. Mm-hmm. So
2: we recorded that in the studio, and then so we had fun with that, and then he went to see if he liked it. Prince was in his apartment at Paisley. He gave me the songs, the engineer was ready, so I took Rosie in the studio. We were back in an hour, and he said, hey, what happened? It didn't work out? I said, no, we got both songs done. He said, what, in one hour? No way. And I'm, and I'm laughing. He's like, man, let me hear this. No way. So we put the tape on, and uh, one minute in he stopped the tape, and he's like, "That voice is in my studio right now." I'm like, "Yeah, that voice, that he, because he felt like she was like Aretha Franklin. That voice is in my studio." Are you telling me that, Levi? He started dancing. He was so happy,
4: and then I was so excited to meet him when I finally saw him. <laughs> My mouth was open a little bit <laughs> Because here it was I was someone that watched uh, Purple Rain about at least I'm going to say at least five to six times Right I watched that and I fell in love with Prince So then there it was There he was right before my face <laughs> And
2: then uh, I remember Before He started recording or he said He just sat around with the piano with her, just playing around with stuff. because Prince knows he's got a pretty, pretty large vocabulary of songs in his head. So he's sitting there playing, like, he knows all of Aretha Franklin's songs, you know? And he's playing them, and Rosie's just going through it like it's water. That was a nice day. I, I, I wanted to see him happy, and he was very happy. So...
3: This is Pain, a song that Prince and Rosie first worked on together in July 1990 during the nude tour.
4: I like and I love to a gentle fire. If I get too close I
3: In those early days, Prince kept good on his promise to help Rosie with her solo material, in addition to showcasing her in his band. While Prince was in the midst of a multi-night residency at Wembley Arena, he visited Metropolis Studios in London with Rosie and the band, including Michael Bland on drums and Dr. Fink on keys, and recorded three of her songs in a single day. This is Streetwalker, a song written by Rosie Gaines that has been in Prince's vaults until now. They also worked on My Tender Heart, a song that Rosie had initially written for her husband, but that Prince rewrote in the studio. the song and he said you know it's a great song but he did change some things around change the lyrics around this is rosie speaking to kfpa radio in 1997. he made the story
4: more about uh, a guy cheating on a woman but the the initial story was more about being in love with a guy let me tell you the hook it's it's like my tender heart my tender love is all i have to give so be careful when you say the words i love you be sure is what you mean that was the initial Thing, and then and how did he do it? <laughs> he did. My tender heart, my tender love is all I have to give. Of what makes you think I can live without you? What makes you think I can live without you? What makes you think I could live without you? Without you? When, I don't
3: want to leave. when do you feel like the NPG, like that first iteration of the NPG, really gelled?
2: I would say, like, after Rosie got in there. Because usually most of Prince's projects, I mean obviously he's the he's the main vocalist. So to have another vocalist that he would say, Okay, you sing that whole song or half of that or do a duet with me, that's really altering the sound. So in my opinion, I would say once we brought Rosie in, then it's like, let's go.
3: Did you know that scream at the beginning of Get Off is Rosie Gaines? That's something I was so delighted to learn while working on this project. Rosie is all over Diamonds and Pearls, and Prince was clearly energized by working with her in the studio, and eager to showcase her talents alongside his own. She's the baddest.
0: Rosie is like the second coming of Aretha Franklin. She can reach anybody. She can make anybody's spirit move, you know? And Prince knew that. She was like the secret weapon, which wasn't so secret, you know. And for him to give a singer that much room in his in his band, that said a lot. I mean, with all of us, he gave me a lot of a lot of real estate to work with. He was so generous with this group, you know, and it it shows in in the recordings in the way he used us. It's like he just let the gifts come.
4: On their side of the street Don't walk where it feels the best Walk away from people you meet Don't talk to strangers unless They walk the way you want them to Don't walk unless the others do With the
3: nude tour wrapped and new material still pouring out of Prince at a rapid pace, he turned his attention toward finalizing the lineup for his new power generation. To flesh out the band, he once again dipped into the club scene in Minneapolis.
5: My name's Tommy Barbarella. I was keyboardist for the new power generation from 1990 to
3: 96. Remember how this was Prince's Godfather 3 meets Barbarella era? Well, Tommy was originally known as Tom Elm and was renamed by Prince. He landed on Prince's radar while playing the fine line with the gospel group The Steels, alongside one of Prince's childhood mentors and musical heroes, Sonny Thompson.
5: Yeah, Sonny and I played with The Steels, and that's when, um, out here, that was Batman era, and um, Prince used to come down to hear us um, because, I mean, The Steels, but also because Sonny was in the band, so... So him and uh, Kim Bassinger would be sitting up in the, in the table up on the edge of the uh, second floor looking down. And everyone was, would be telling me, he's checking you out. Prince is checking you out. He likes your look. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, right.
3: What was your look?
5: I was working it pretty hard. Um, very Prince-like. I was full-on makeup and crazy clothes. You know, I was doing the thing.
3: Tommy's story about ending up out at Paisley Park also happens to involve Dr. Mambo's Combo and Margaret Cox, the same person that had tipped Prince off to Michael Bland.
5: He had done a record on Margaret Cox called MC Flash, and uh, the backing band was basically Mambo's Combo, Billy Franzi, Doug Nelson, Michael Bland, Do Double Duty. And um, Steve Cherowan, the keyboard player decided he didn't want to do it. So they called me, it's like, do you want to come out to Paisley and start rehearsing with us? And I said, sure. Um, so we were right here in Studio C um, rehearsing. And that's you know the first time I met Prince.
3: Tommy and I recorded this interview together in the control room of Studio C at Paisley Park, which is now home to a Purple Rain Museum exhibit. It was quite surreal to watch him look out into the studio space and travel back in time to his earliest memories there.
5: So it was literally after one of those rehearsals, probably second time I was here, third time maybe, that um, Prince asked Sonny Michael and I had to stay behind and help him finish off a couple of new songs that he was working on. And, and it was like, "Are, are you serious?"
0: <laughs> Prince caught us like as we were leaving. He said, hey. You know, he poked his head in the sound stage and are you guys uh, are you guys leaving? And then we were about to, he said, Well, could you stay for a few minutes? I have a song I'm working on, I need help. So we all put our coats down and our duffel bags and whatnot, and returned to the instruments. And the idea he had was for Diamonds and Pearls. And he started showing Sonny like the doo-doo doo-doo, showing him on the keyboard, like I hear the bass doing this, and you know. Sonny put his own wiggle on, and he's, oh, good, okay. And then he showed the chords to Barbarella. Like, we got as far as probably the bridge. And then he went, okay, if you guys can stay for another half an hour, we can record this right now.
4: Do. But tell me what you go
5: Showed us the songs. We ended up moving our stuff over to Studio B and we recorded Diamonds and Pearls that day.
1: That was the first song we did.
3: This is Sonny Thompson, also known as Sonny T.
1: He said, I got this song called Diamonds and Pearls I want to record. So I think we recorded that song in about maybe an hour. It was me, Tommy, Michael Bland, Prince is playing. And I hadn't met Rosie yet. It was just us for, at first, you know? And then Levi came in, I think, cutting the guitar from late, if I remember correctly. And that's how it all really started for me.
0: The two takes, the only difference between the two takes <laughs> is, um, well, there's two differences. I changed the kick drum pattern and the third verse a little to be a little less uh, obtrusive. And also that big, that hole at the end of the like the fanfare, i put something in there. You know, it needs something. Oh, okay. So, second pass, you know, the entire time we're playing, I'm like, what am I gonna do in this this huge hole? It's a bar long, it needs a drum fill. So I just... So I do the thing. Princess looking from the control room. Alright, yeah. He's happy. You know, things went quick, went smooth. Barbarilla did a couple of overdubs, and we headed out.
3: Everyone still had gigs to play that night. Michael headed to Bunkers to play with Mambo's combo. And Tommy and Sonny went to another bar in the warehouse district called Nikki's Cafe.
5: I was playing piano down at Nikki's. Remember Nikki's Cafe? Uh-huh. The goat cheese pizza. <laughs> I think I played down there in that upright. But Sonny was with me. And I remember playing and we were like, oh, let's play that song we recorded today with Prince. And we would play Diamonds and Pearls. Like
3: Really? At Nikki's?
5: Yeah, we were just kind of messing around like it was. Yeah, we had just recorded it, so we knew it. That was pretty bizarre to think about. I thought it was maybe a Christmas song.
3: <laughs> Prince was so energized by the way the Diamonds and Pearls recording had gone that he sent out for all three musicians to come back to Paisley Park.
0: About 12.30, Dwayne, his brother, shows up, head of security. Hey, Prince said he wants you guys to come back to the studio after you finish up down here. So we go back. We cut another song for Diamonds and Pearls called Live for Love.
3: This is an early version of Live for Love from Prince's Vault.
1: Remember him and Sheila, e was, and Sheila E. was there that
5: day too. He was sitting in the control room with Sheila, and I was like doubly nervous because she was there too. And I'm like, oh my god, is Sheila E. And and he's like, take a solo, and so like that solo ended up on "Live for Love."
3: Prince clearly liked what he heard in the album mix of the song. He can be heard egging Tommy on.
5: But yeah, all that stuff happened really fast and that was before I was even in the band. For me, it was just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. A, B, I have to not screw up and I'm, you know, gotta perform and then C, I have to try to look really cool doing it all the time. And that was the pressure that never ended really.
0: You know, it turned into an official offer for Tommy and Sonny to join the band. And we s- cut most of that record as a, like a rhythm section in the studio, which people weren't really doing at that time.
1: The recording process really was great after that. Yeah. That album, we just started, it just started flowing. You know, the Dimes of Pearls record and then all the other Prince albums after that, you know, we just started spitting out so much music. It was just an amazing time in history for, for him because he felt that he had a lot of guys he knew that he grew up with. I me mean, know, Tony Damon and Kirk, he knew all them. Mm-hmm. He knew me, and he loved Tommy and Michael Bland. He just you know he just fell in love with Michael. He was taking all these musicians from all these different bands to put into his band. It was crazy.
3: I love that and, it's so Minneapolis. Like he's yeah, he's absolutely. really minding his own hometown. You know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Totally a Minneapolis thing, you know, and he just felt free because it was all his friends. I'm convinced,
0: and I, people may be critical when I say this, but what happened with that band was the darkness cleared for a little while. I don't know how else to put it, you know. I mean, you can tell from his re- repertoire that sometimes he dealt with you know, dark subject matter. The darkness kind of took a sabbatical. It's kind of, we pushed it all out of the way. Too much new, you know, enthusiasm and, you know, fresh spirit. And, you know, just new people. It just I think we just rejuvenated him. Put him in a, in a kind of a positive mindset that he didn't really go all the way in on before that. You know? I think it really, the music and playing with us inspired him to express himself differently. Oh, daddy.
3: Coming up next on the story of Diamonds and Pearls.
5: Minneapolis is a feel, you know, you can tell the difference.
3: We are going to dig deeper into Prince's roots in his hometown of Minneapolis. And you're going to meet the dancing, rapping, drumming, singing trio of Tony Mosley, Damon Dixon, and Kirk Johnson, who you may know as TDK or the Game Boys, and who became a central force in Prince's world during the Diamonds and Pearls era.
1: Never in a million years, did I think Prince would incorporate rap into his music. When he talked about it, you know, we had real conversations.
3: The story of Diamonds and Pearls is written, hosted, and executive produced by me, Andrea Swenson, in collaboration with NPG Records, Paisley Park Enterprises, Sony Music Entertainment, and Warner Records. Anna Wegel is our producer, and Corey Schreppel is our technical director. A special thank you to Zach Hockapal, Giancarlo Siyama, and Dwayne Tudal for all your support. And a very special thank you to LaToya Gaines for helping us to get those priceless memories from her mother, Rosie Gaines. The newly remastered, expanded editions of Diamonds and Pearls are available to order now at Prince.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, search for the official Prince podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite platform.
4: Oh, you're the
0: best. See all my critics wasting time. We're about the daddy, you blind. Get your life
4: together.